Hello, everybody, and thank you for being here for this special episode of the Live Well Bipolar podcast. You guys, I have a very special guest joining me today who many of you may know. And if you do not know, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him without giving too much away because I want him to tell the majority of his story for us today. But I am sitting here virtually with Kevin Hines, and Kevin survived a suicide attempt jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in the year 2000 at the age of 19. He is one of only 36, less than 1% to survive the fall. He shares the many factors that contributed to his miraculous survival, including a sea lion, which kept him afloat until the Coast Guard arrived. He is a best-selling author, global public speaker, and an award-winning documentary filmmaker. You may have seen his story in his documentary, Suicide, the Ripple Effect, where he details his lifelong battle with mental illness and what helped change his life for the better. Kevin now travels the world sharing his story of hope, healing, and recovery while teaching people of all ages the art of wellness and the ability to survive pain with true resilience. So Kevin, thank you so much for being here today to share your story and your experiences with us all today on Live Well Bipolar. Thank you so much, Paris, for having me. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Of course. And one thing we got to do is we got to thank our girl, Brandy Benson, for helping make this happen, you guys, because many of you know that these conversations on the podcast, they come through the art of our stories and connecting. And one person will connect us with someone else, whether you're a listener, whether you're a guest. And Brandy was a guest two and a half years ago, and she shared her story. And again, inside of Kevin's new book here, The Art of Being Broken, How Storytelling Saves Lives. Her story is featured in here as well. And Kevin, I know I can understand that you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 17 years old, but you began having experiences hearing voices as early as the fourth grade. So I'd love for you just to lay it out. What did that look like for young Kevin? Yeah, so it was something that I didn't talk about uh, because I didn't know what it was. Uh, I was in fourth grade. And I was having pretty semi-regular auditory hallucinations. And I think I might have might have mentioned this to my mom, like I'm having these things in my head and and, and none of us knew wh- what they were, where they were coming from and what they were saying. It wasn't like I could understand audible words. It was like murmurs in my head of a voice I didn't recognize as that of my conscience. Um, or 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 of anybody I knew. And I think this can be attributed to early infant trauma, uh, what I was going through in fourth grade, because my 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 childhood with with Patrick and Deborah Hines taking me in and making me their son and adopting me, um, they are my mom and dad, uh, you know, and they're incredible. Uh they gave me and my brother and my sister a beautiful life. We we all had very traumatic infancies. But what they know about uh, infant, I'll just say this, what they know about infant chimpanzees who have been removed from their birth mother from birth is that they have akin to brain damage. Mm-hmm. And versus the chimpanzees that stay with the mother from birth. And you can relate that to humankind 
in the sense that I was taken away from my birth mother anywhere between five and 10 times in my early infancy, and then eventually removed completely. Uh, and that abandonment feeling, that abandonment issue, that detachment from reality occurred very young for me. Uh, and I think that had a great deal to play, to play with um, this idea of me hearing voices in fourth grade. And then they went away after some time and they came back full force at 17 and a half years of age when I had a complete mental breakdown in front of 1,200 people. At, uh, I was in a theater show at Archbishop Reardon High School and complete mental breakdown, hearing voices in my head telling me that the audience was going to kill me. And so those paranoid delusions led to me being diagnosed with bipolar depression from 17 and a half years of age to 19. It, it was just a tumultuous road of very high highs and very low lows. Manic euphoric natural highs caused not by recreational drugs, but caused by the misaligning chemistry in my brain. And once you go up Paris, you know, you must come down. You understand Something. we both deal with the same thing here. So you, you get it of all people you understand. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it would lead me to very, very, very dark places. And see, something that really resonates for me is when you talk about your diagnosis, because I know at least in my case, being hospitalized at 19 years old, diagnosed at 19 years old, I feel like for me, if I can think back to that, what tools did I actually have? What did I actually have leaving that hospital that was going to enable me to take control of my life and get on that path to figuring out what wellness even looks like for you from that time period, when you say 17 and a half to 19, did you feel there was anything that you were given at all in terms of tools, support that you felt was helpful at all? Because I know for me, I really didn't feel that back then. So I'd love to hear from your perspective. Well, first of all, my first psychiatrist uh, turned out to be on methamphetamines the entire time he treated me and his other patients. Wow. Um, he, he needed help and he wasn't getting it. And I, I hold no well toward the man. Uh, he, he was struggling and he didn't know how to ask for help as, as a therapist and psychiatrist, which is very tragic. And uh, he, he was, by all accounts, considered one of the best in the field in San Francisco. And we were lucky, lucky enough to be able to avail of him not knowing what he was dealing with. And uh, when I was seeing him for the first two years, you have to understand, I was lying in therapy. I was telling the doctor what I thought he wanted to hear. I was not adequately following a treatment plan, which he gave me. Um, I think had I followed that treatment plan, it was pretty sufficient to get me into a better state of mind. But I was taking psych meds one day and not the next, seven days and not for seven days, or while binge drinking until blackout on the weekends while on psychotropic medications, which could have destroyed me, but I wasn't trying to get higher, feel the buzz. I was trying to stop the voices I was hearing in my head. And so um, the doctor was frankly trying to help me. I, I was just unwilling and unable to hear it. And I was in complete denial. I don't have this thing called bipolar disorder. I was a high school WCAL wrestling champion. My, uh, see, all ego, right? My football team, after I played with them, they went on to go to state. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, I was, I was, uh, uh, 
doing well in every aspect of school. Why would this happen to me? I I played the victim. I I felt uh, pity for myself. Um, instead of taking the horse by the reins and taking action and educating myself as to what bipolar disorder is, how do I defeat it? I went into self-destruct mode. And from 17 to 19, that's kind of this rocky road that I was on. And at 19 years of age, I I, I always say it, 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 it's still the same. Uh, the pain became too great to bear. And the pain was so immense, such a weight on my shoulders. I couldn't carry it alone, uh, but I wasn't asking for help. And I was not taking responsibility for the fact that I had this disease and I had to fight it tooth and nail every single day without fail, or it was, or I was going to succumb to it. And so at 19, uh, on September 24th, I was in such a deep state of pain. I call it lethal emotional pain. I think that's the common denominator of anybody who attempts or dies by suicide. They certainly have to have lethal emotional pain. And I made my way out to the Golden Gate Bridge that day. And I, I I left off. When you talk about the pain being too great to bear and not being able to ask for help, something that sticks out to me when we met here in Arizona back in October, when you came to speak to the Hope Gives Foundation and tell your story and this piece of what really sticks out for me is when you talk about being on that bus and tears flowing, not being visibly okay. No one asking if you're okay. No one coming over to say anything. And the one person who did when you were on the bridge was asking to take the photograph and you talk about the timeline there, but something that you talk about, you said pain is inevitable, right? And all of us are gonna experience and go through that. But you talk about suffering being optional. You mentioned the doctors when you got your diagnosis talking about you suffering with bipolar disorder. And you said you took on this and became the victim and you internalized that. And I think for me, at least, I have that similar experience of doing that as well. And I feel like I wasn't able ever to move out of that until I was able to get away from that identity. So I'd love to hear from you if you can give me the top thing that helped you transition out of living inside of that for so long. Let's break that down. So pain is inevitable. It's coming for all of us if it hasn't already. How old we are, where we come from, our ethnic makeup, whatever we struggled with, pain is coming for all of us if it hasn't already. Suffering is optional. It's a choice. Now, I'm not talking about people who live in war-torn countries we see today or people who have truly been viciously victimized by others physically or emotionally. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who uh, ha have a relatively good life growing up as a child. Uh, they end up struggling with brain and mental health issues or disorders or struggles as an adolescent. They've never experienced this beforehand. And they live in this state of victimhood or suffering, which only makes them the victim of their own story until they recognize that they can fight their pain, despite of their pain, in spite of their pain, to thrive instead of suffer. They can become the hero of their journey as opposed to being the victim. And, and as you see in my in the, in the book you have there, The Art of Being Broken, How Storytelling Saves Lives, we talk about how to overcome 
the greatest mental pain you could ever experience. There are seven contributing authors that share their stories because I didn't want to just come out with another book all about me. I wanted to share a book that shares my story from when the last book stopped till now. So it's a bunch of new stories, but also recaps the original story, but more importantly, shares stories of seven individuals, including Brandy L. Benson, who introduced us. Shout out to Brandy again. Uh, her story is incredible in here. And so is everyone else's. And, and I wanted to do that because it's, it's not about me. All of our stories matter. All of our stories weigh on importance and they're all, they're, they're all, they all have value. Your story is just as important as mine. You're just highlighting mine today. But back to the question you asked. So, so the things that got me into shifting my perspective were a couple of things. So when I was on the Coast Guard boat in the water under the Golden Gate Bridge, after they fished me from the waters, after a sea lion kept me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. When I was on that boat, uh, I made a cognitive decision that no matter the pain I would ever be in again, I would never attempt to take my life so long as I shall live. And for 23 years of living with chronic thoughts of suicide, never attempted again. Wow. Never. And the, the, the two things I do, Paris, every time I'm suicidal today, of the thousands of times I have been, because it doesn't just go away. I'm not recovered. I'm in recovery like one would be from substance use disorder. The two things I do every time I'm suicidal. Number one, I find a mirror, any mirror, anywhere. I say in that mirror, my thoughts do not have to become my actions. They can simply be my thoughts. They don't have to own, rule, or define what I do next. Thus, if my thoughts are angry, rageful, aggressive, violent, self-violent, I don't have to act on them. I can just let them pass. The second thing I do is undeniable. I turn to anyone willing to help me, whether I know them from Adam or not. And I say four simple but very effective words. I need help now. Now, when they look at me and they say, what do you mean, kid? I say, well, I'm having these thoughts and I need someone to help me keep me safe. Now, not everybody's going to be willing or able to answer the call. But by the sheer probability of the number of people you decide to turn to, and it's a decision, make no mistake about it, that you decide to turn to, someone will be willing to keep you safe, even from yourself. And in 23 years of doing those two things, every single time suicidal, am I not sitting before you right now? Wow. It is a foolproof way to live with suicidal thoughts by those two methods alone. You will never take your life if you utilize those two method, methods to stay alive. You will always be here tomorrow and every single day after that. 100%. Correct me if this is wrong, but you, you've had 10 hospitalizations. 10 total, yeah. It was the third one that you talked about coming across an article in the Times, 2004 article. And I think something that sticks out to me, because I remember sitting in my hospitalization and thinking, I never went through any of these changes that you discovered inside of that article that you read. Something else that, that can pull from that is this concept of the three E's. So I'd love if you can share what that is and what was it about that article that was so moving for you? 
Yeah, it was eye-opening. So so let's give it context. My Uncle George came to see me in my third psych ward stay of 10. He said, Kevin, you're going to be in here for the rest of your life and in and out of these places for the rest of your life. If you don't get your act together, what's it going to be? And uh, I was, <laughs> I remember uh, he said, get it together, kid. We're counting on you. And he left. And I was like, you're not my favorite uncle anymore, but he was already gone. And as he left, he dropped the Time Magazine article on the table and he, and he walked out. And it was tough love at its best. And I picked up the magazine, Time Magazine article on how to fight bipolar depression, mental illness, and and uh, with routine and regimen and win. Mm -hmm. None of my doctors, even the one in that psych unit, had not told me that was a bright idea. Routine and regimen can create better mental well-being. And that goes for anyone in the world, specifically a person with a diagnosed mental illness or brain health disorder. Very helpful because you regimen your daily activities and you get into a routine of wellness that you don't break. When you don't break that routine of wellness, you have the highest propensity to succeed beyond the disease. What I would do, well, first of all, I read the article through and through. I go to my case manager and I say, let me use your gym. And she goes, Kevin, this is a psych ward, not a, not, not a gym still. It's every, every psych ward should have a gym. It's in the magazine. You know, I'm, <laughs> you're right. So, and so I go and I go and I, I end up going to the nutritionist, go to the nutritionist and, and I say, Hey, you know what, what should I do different? And she said, well, you're pre-diabetic. You're well overweight. I, I think one thing you should do is uh, eat one meal per four unhealthy meals you're eating right now. You're eating four unhealthy meals, change it to one at one at one per, I was eating four meals a day, three times a day to catch my drift. And so, and, and they were all, it was all like terrible uh, processed foods that I was eating. So they switched me on to an anti-inflammatory food regimen and I started to lose the weight. I started to feel better, right? And then they say, okay, here's an idea. Why don't you be honest in therapy? <laughs> right? Being honest in therapy allows us to get to the root of our problems and then solve said problems, right? Mm -hmm. So I started honest in therapy. I started eating healthier. I started educating myself about all of these issues with brain and mental health. And I started exercising every day, multiple times a day, and I was feeling great. So the three E's of my personal 10-step regimen that I that I put together uh, with then one of the foremost uh, sociologists in the field, Dr. Daniel J. Reidenberg, now I've re 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 recreated it. It's, it's much bigger and bolder now uh, and much more in, in depth. And we're going to release it as a, a full course uh, fairly soon, probably in January or February. Um, uh, an e-course. And so uh, I wrote down what I call the art, what I called back then the art of wellness. Um, and it's 10 steps to stabilize your brain, mind, behavioral, mental, physical health and well-being. And these steps are science-backed, evidence-informed, proven to change your, change your brain, to change your life. And I think that all too often, in this country around the world, we're so stuck on this idea of mental health. Look, I get it. We've said, and I, even I use it when I need to, but like we've said mental health since the, since we can remember. It's what we were indoctrinated to do. Uh, mental, mental, mental. But here's the deal. There's a negative connotation to the term mental all by itself. 
raise your hand right now if you would love to be labeled mental for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so what there is very concretely in between our two temples is a thing called the brain. And your brain is the single most powerful organ you wield. It's mostly on automatic mode. It controls every action, inaction you take, decision, indecision, for lack of a better way of saying it. If your brain is malfunctioning, there goes the rest of you. And your brain is probably the most important muscle you can exercise. So what I did was I built a program that allows me to exercise my brain and my body, my mind and my soul, eat healthy foods that are anti-inflammatory most meals, most days, educate myself as to my diagnosis, meaning that everything that comes out on bipolar disorder, I get a Google alert and I'm downloading it into my brain. So whenever there's a new form of treatment that's reputable, proven, helps, benefits, I'm going to get on that. I'm going to make that a part of my daily active program, or at least my weekly active program, if not daily. So I get a Google alert right today on wellness in the workplace, bipolar depression, mental illness, because there's so many articles out there about mental health. Right. Then, and then and then suicide prevention. I get those Google alerts. I I do a deep dive every Friday. And then I have a wealth of knowledge to go into the next week and go, hey, I can change this. I can change that. Augment this, augment that. But I am doing the work every day to live in recovery one day at a time and to never succumb to my disease with my chronic thoughts of suicide. I am taking 110% responsibility for my own brain disease. I understand that there are people that live with severe schizophrenia that are on the streets of America who, who have no one and nothing to guide and guard them from their struggles. Um, and they may struggle for the rest of their lives until they, they pass on from this mortal coil, which is very tragic and very sad. But to all of you out there who are struggling with your brain health, your mental health, and you are going through hell, but you're not doing the work to change things, it's time. Mm-hmm. Put in the time, effort, energy, and hard work and to change your brain, to change your life, as the famous Dr. Amen said. And I couldn't agree more, especially when you said, I'm not recovered, I'm in recovery. That's the thing that I want everyone to understand is I feel like sometimes people think, especially with your story, right? Some people might say, Kevin, you travel, you share your story, all this stuff. So you're recovered, you're healed. You don't have any of these things coming up, but you talk about, I still have chronic thoughts of suicide date, not, if not daily, very, very often, they're never going to go away. I'm never going to be done with the work. And that's what resonates with me so much because there are still days, no matter what, no matter how much you pour into, but this thing that you talk about this routine and the regimen is everything for that foundation that I know I was lacking when I was diagnosed before that and has really helped completely turn my life around. So I would love to ask you, correct me if this is wrong, but you travel 300 days out of the year to share your story. So how do you maintain that? So this year would have been about 250 days a year this year. Mm-hmm. In the past, it's been 300 up to 345 at its highest rate. Um, but but that meant that I was also tra- sometimes going to a location and circling the area. So I wasn't just getting on a plane every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, uh, back in the day when it was really moving fast, I was training every morning. I was, I was eating anti-inflammatory foods every single day. I was really in the peak condition that I, that I was at the time. Um, today I've lapsed a little bit on something, so I've got to 
get back into the, the regimen and the routine. Um, so I'm very, very open about that. Very honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I eat more chocolate now than I used to, but, <laughs> but, but no, no, no. But, but, but one of the things I realized is this, you have to enjoy life, right? So if, 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 if that, I, I look at it like the 80, 20, rule. 80% of the time I'm following the routine and the regimen to the T I'm following the eating habits to the T 20% of the time I'm opening up my life to, uh, to the wonderment of existence and to, uh, to try the things that uh, make my taste buds very happy. You know what I mean? Like things right. like that. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I don't believe in complete restriction of certain things. That's not part of my parameter. Um, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to love life. I'm going to love my family, love my friends, but I'm going to love myself enough to do the work and to stay stable to the best of my ability by putting in that time, energy, effort, and hard work. Hard work, as my father said, because nothing good ever came without it. That's in the book. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, um, you know I, think that, I think that far too many people in this day and age uh, and I'm not blaming any one generation because certainly there are different conflicting issues on this, but far too many people um, have gotten too used to the uberfication of this life. Mm-hmm. Your your food is there at the door in 20 minutes. You Same thing from the grocery store, same thing for the travel and car and airspace. Everything is easily accessible. Things need to get a little harder for us, I think, for us to realize that we have to put in the time, energy, effort, and hard work for things to change. It's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to have the uberfication of your brain health if you have a diagnosed brain illness. If you have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, it's not going to get better if you're sitting doing nothing, eating potato chips and playing video games. It's just not. It is going to get better if you take action to understand the disease so that you can fight it. And that's where I fall as it comes to my bipolar depression is that there's far too many people out there in the world right now that advocate and say things like, oh, you know, people, you have depression, you just need to go to the gym more. I go to the gym. I have a gym downstairs. I use it every day. That doesn't solve my brain disease. And I think it's all too easy for us who don't live with severe depression or severe anxiety to sit here and judge the people that say they do. Now, do I believe that there's far too many diagnosed people today than ever before? Absolutely. And I think some of it is unfounded and some of it is, is the, the pushing forward of the, of the, um, of the pharmaceutical narrative and, uh, and, 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 mis- and, and mission, which is to sometimes get people on the meds just to be on the meds. And I think that's something that's very real that needs to be looked at. What I will say is this, a brain disease is very real. Your brain is so powerful and when parts of your brain aren't working properly, you're going to struggle. And I and you can't pray that away. I'm a prayerful man. I have faith in God. I believe in God in my whole heart. I'm not asking anybody watching or listening to believe what I believe. I am letting you know that my faith in God is strong. And it always has been. The only time it was gone was when I when I leapt off that bridge. My father's fond of saying he found him on the way down. But, but back to the earlier point is that we have so many people now spewing on social media that depression's all a mindset, it's all in your head, it doesn't exist. That's not true. Scientific evidence over the course of human history has proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be so negligent and so simple-minded to say it doesn't exist, it's all in your head, is not fair. 
to the people that are coming up as young as youngsters, to the youth, to the teenagers that come up and watch those influencers say that it doesn't exist. All you need to do is pull your boots up, pull yourself up by your bootstrap and get over it. It's not how it works. Wow. I think we need to be minded to these other thoughts and other ideas. Um, but we need to call people out in a moment and say, hold on, wait a minute. You didn't go through what I went through. You didn't live through me hearing voices in my head that were not that of my conscience telling me I had to die, seeing things that nobody else could see, having hallucinations of demons and dragons and all kinds of things that don't exist on this plane of existence. Mm -hmm. um, you didn't go through that. I did. And that was as real as the hands in front of my face. And it wasn't something I could pray away. And it wasn't something that I could just go to the gym and make disappear. Yeah, no. So, okay. When you said that right there, if it's all in your head, something just came back to me because as someone sitting here who I went back and I worked at the same exact hospital where I was a patient at, where I received my diagnosis at, and I worked there to try to serve the people struggling in similar ways as me. And this even came up as I had somebody that I was working alongside who said something to the effect of that, you know, a lot of the patients coming in here, it's all in their head and literally said, I wish I could be like them. So I could just come in here and get free services and free healthcare and stuff. Wow. And I, that really hit me so hard. It hit me so hard because I was like, look, I was a patient here. And to say that again, is not only offensive because it makes it seem like everything is just, you can wish your way out of it or, you know, pray your way out of it. Right. And I was like, look, I worked as a cashier and I had two minimum wage jobs and I didn't even qualify for the free healthcare she's referencing. So I said that, and I wasn't afraid to say that. And I feel like I learned a lot going back and working in that facility. And it really opened my eyes to the work that I still didn't do because at that time I wasn't open about my experiences, about my story, nothing. And you saying this right now really shows me the biggest lesson I know in my heart for what's helped me be able to live well bipolar. But I want to hear from you, Kevin, when you think about what it means for you to live well bipolar, what does that mean? It means to be kind to myself. It means to, to, to hold myself accountable for my inactions, but to also be kind to myself when I fall short. And that's not the end of the world. It's not the last day. It means tomorrow I pick up pick myself up, dust myself off, and start all over again. As The Rock says, one day or day one, right? right. One day or day one. And I've started a lot of... Uh, efforts to better myself and I have fallen short in my life. There's no doubt about that, even recently, mm -hmm. but I'm going to pick up tomorrow. I'm going to get back on the horse and I'm going to continue and I'm going to make myself more disciplined than ever before. And in a few short months, you'll see the result. Wow. And that's, I'm talking about brain wise. And, um, you know, I think that, I think that giving yourself grace is very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, but I, I'll, at the same time, balancing it out with, with, with not always accepting that you can't do something until you force yourself to find how you can do something, how you mm. can do something. If you try over and over again, I don't believe in failure. I do not believe in failure. I've never failed a day in my life. It was a setup to something greater. That's how I feel. I, I didn't coin that phrase, but it was a setup to something. Greater. I never failed in my life. I faltered, I wavered, I struggled, I dealt with hardship, 
when I got back up and I kept moving forward. And if the rest of the world felt like that, they would be able to overcome any pain that ever came their way. And see, that's the biggest thing that always resurfaces for me is that reminder. And I needed that today. When you say having grace, being kind to yourself and that this whole perception of what we think failure is. And, you know, something that you talked about, I've heard you talk about this. I want to see if you ended up doing it. Did you end up getting that Deadpool tattoo that you, that you were referencing? <laughs> Did you ever end up doing that? Oh, that I was, I was very, very manic. Well, you did your homework. <laughs> I got to tell you, you did your homework. I was going to get uh, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional crest on my back that would go all the way around the outer outside of the back. And then inside would be a, a collage of Deadpool because Deadpool is obviously my favorite character. Right. I can't tell. <laughs> you can see. Um, but but I, I opted not to do that. A uh, couple reasons. When I was, when I went to the tattoo artist to see if I can get it done, he said at the time he said I can't tattoo your skin; it's too burnt. I was dealing with uh, uh, second degree burns from head to toe without a fire. One of the medications I was on had poisoned my organs and caused my entire body to be inflamed. Um, it was, it was, it was vicious, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I was uh, in physical, it was excruciating physical pain for 38 weeks, 24 hours a day. Uh, and I was, because I couldn't, I couldn't be on psych meds that had to take me off all psych meds and all, all asthma and allergy meds, which is very dangerous for a person with severe asthma like me, but they had to take me off everything because they didn't know what was causing the, 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 the breakage in my skin. My skin integrity had failed at 98%. If you, if I brushed my finger on this cotton, it would cut me up deep. Wow. Was a horrible time in my life. Um, the pictures to see them even today are brutal. Um, bloody blisters everywhere. Uh, and uh, I was very manic. And I was, I, I would wear these very thick gloves. And I would train 16 times a day. Mm -hmm. So it became very, this, this, this exercise um, indulgence and uh, and really addiction became uh, really terrible for two years. Um, I was exercising every day, 16 times a day, most days without fail, um, because it was the only thing that would mitigate the physical pain I was in was causing a different kind of pain. Mm -hmm. um, and sure, I was I was ripped, but I was not well. Right. Um, and, and I ended up falling back into an eating disorder uh, that I had dealt with in high school wrestling. I was really in a bad spot. And, um, you know, it, 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 look, I'm here now. Um, I, I want to be very careful with how I talk about eating and, eat, and eating issues because healthy eating is different for every person. And sure, you can go by your macros and do all the stuff you need to get to, to be in a, in a bodybuilding state of mind. But mm -hmm. times those people are still struggling with their eating habits too. So, we need to be aware that um, nutrient-dense food, most meals, most days, is a good way to go, but also foods that feed your brain and your brain health are crucial. Mm -hmm. And I want to express to the people that I, I want to talk to, it's not about the six-pack abs. Sure, that's great, and it's aesthetically great. Good for you. It's not about that for me. And I don't care if I ever reach that or I don't. I care about feeling good. Mm -hmm. 
I care about treating my family well. I care about giving myself grace and being kind, compassionate, loving, caring, non-judgmental, and 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 generous to everybody around me. That's what I care about, and I think those are much more important um, attributes than financial gain or or monetary success. I'm not against monetary success. I am monetarily successful, but I'm that, that's not my striving goal. Is is to have is to have riches. I don't I don't care about that. I care about giving back to every community I serve and trying to help people in all of those communities stay right here. My life goal is to be a good husband to my to my wife Margaret, to be a good son to my parents, to be a good sibling to my brothers and sisters, and to try to help as many human beings be here tomorrow and every single day after that, no matter the pain they're in. I love it. And I love that just the way in which you speak about these things, because you do have a book that I'm super excited about. And something that's really sticks out for me is I just got off of a annual board meeting with NAMI and they were talking about different organizations here at Arizona. And it makes me so happy to see these kids as young as 14 years old, talking about these things and wanting to get involved. Like how can we set up places on our campus to help other students? So talk to me about this book and this message and what you're hoping to get out through putting this together. Yeah, the book comes out in January, uh, pretty quick turnaround from my last book. I wrote it a couple of years ago, but we just finished the illustrations uh, and the editing. Brandy Benson actually edited the book. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> um, and it's a book for uh, for kids from one to 11 years of age. And it's about defeating bullying through understanding your personal power. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's about becoming resilient in the face of pain for children. And it, 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 the, the setting is in space. We're in space and we're dealing with uh, uh, mama shines and little shines, obviously <laughs> an ode to my mom. Um, when I was being bullied in grade school viciously, uh, to no end. It was my mom who would get me through every day. And this book is a thank you to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, called the dimly lit star. It should come out. I think, I think it comes out January 18th. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, January 18th. Um, and the dimly lit star is all about how to teach your children the art of self-compassion, the art of self-preservation and how to hold high self-esteem in the face of somebody hurting you. Oh, um, and it. And it teaches the child that only hurt people hurt people or hurt stars hurt stars, you know? Mm. So uh, we talk about the spatial medias as opposed to the social medias, the spatial medias. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. The illustrations by Rin Maria are phenomenal. It's going to blow you away. Um, it's a hardcover book. Um, and... Uh, we make no apologies for it. It's a beautiful piece of literature that is going to help children realize their true potential. I'm so excited. The impact that that's going to have alongside everything that you already have done. And as we wrap up 2023 here and head into 2024, I know one of the biggest things that we do have coming is what is being worked on with that net that's coming with the bridge that you played a role in helping to facilitate along with so many others in that. So is there any updates that you can provide on that or just 
anything in general? Yeah, um, the, we, we fought for the raising of the net uh, to stop suicides at the Golden Gate Bridge for basically 23 years. Mm -hmm. And here we are in December of 2023. The net will be complete this month and likely uh, from now on, a very, very small amount of people will ever again die off the Golden Gate Bridge, and it will become the largest, brightest, most powerful beacon for suicide prevention around the world. Mm -hmm. We're making a film to chronicle this entire story of all of the entire effort, everyone involved to raise the net at the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's um, it's going to be a beautiful documentary um, that that has a global twist to it mm -hmm. about what's going on in the world um as it pertains to mental health and homelessness and things like that and drug addiction but it's it's a it's a global story it's not just focused on the golden gate bridge but its center is the golden gate bridge um, wow. everybody looks out for that i'm so excited just to, to share all the things that we have coming here and just kevin again you know i want to thank you for just coming out and sharing these experiences and these big major parts of your story that have been the good parts the bad parts and everything in between that have really helped really just enable you to be the person you are today going out and continuing to spread these messages of hope to really help people start to get on that path or to continue on that path no matter where they are on that path so thank you so much for making the time to come out here today i've had an amazing time talking with you. I love these conversations. They light me up like nothing else in the world. So I want to thank you guys as well for taking the time to listen and to continue to invest in yourself. If you are listening to this and you live with bipolar disorder, or if you're listening to this and you love or care for someone who does, and you want more insight from others who also live with bipolar to understand how to be able to help out in those ways. So thanks, Kevin. And thank you guys again for being here as always. Thank you, Paris. Awesome. Get a quick screenshot before we go. 